As you're being seated, go ahead and find your Bibles and open them up to the Old Testament book known as Habakkuk. We're going to be throughout the entire book. Our feature passage today will be in Habakkuk chapter 3. On October the 10th, I had a great privilege. The Green Foundation asked a bunch of pastors from the area to go up to Washington, D.C. and visit the new Bible Museum up there. And if you get a chance to go to D.C., the Bible Museum will really knock your socks off. It's an amazing thing. I, I really recommend going. Good stuff for all ages and all different levels of Bible scholarship as well. But on Wednesday night, we had the awesome opportunity to worship in the Capitol building. And I found myself on Wednesday night standing beneath the rotunda that we've seen so many times on television, standing right there in the center, singing How Great Thou Art with a group of pastors. You ever have one of those moments where uh, you're singing and it's one of those worship moments that you'll never forget? That was one of those moments as our voices were lifted up and you could hear them echoing through the rotunda, these halls of power, and here we were praising God as our anchor as our foundation. Have you ever asked this question? Why do we sing in church? A very few places in America today do we sing. And yet at the same time, music is a big part of our culture. In fact, virtually every area of American culture revolves around music in some way. If you think about uh, many of the top TV shows, they revolve around music. How many of you, when you drive, you put music on when you drive? Uh, because music's a big part of our culture. But in America, we really don't sing that much, but we listen to a lot of music. And yet music is a gift that God has given us where we can express. I call it the language of the soul. Because God gave us this gift of music as a way to praise Him. And so music is a part of worship. You may never have made this connection before, but music is also a creative form of prayer. And so as the church sings, music becomes this great prayer, this corporate prayer, where we're all coming together, saying the same words, expressing the same feelings as a group prayer to God. And that's why it's important that whenever we do sing, that you, you participate, that you don't just sit there and, you know, you know, and kind of just endure, but you actually sing. You say, well, I've got a bad singing voice. Well, just sing quietly or something. I don't know. But, uh, but still participate in such because God gave us this gift of music and whenever the church gathers, we, we come together in prayer. Well, in Habakkuk chapter 3, we see one of the great prayers of the Bible. What you may not realize is that this prayer was also a hymn that they often sang uh, in biblical days. Now, call me crazy, but I doubt that many of us in the room today are experts on Habakkuk. Okay, anybody do your Ph.D. dissertation on Habakkuk or anything like that, okay? So not many of us are experts on this guy named Habakkuk. He's what we call a minor prophet. Now, it's not because his impact was minor, but it was, we call the minor prophets the prophets towards the Old Testament that wrote these small books. We call those the minor prophet books, and Habakkuk 
is one of those. He lived in the 7th century B.C., and he was about a decade before the Babylonian Empire would invade Jerusalem and conquer them. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 4 where you have this woman that the Bible calls the Shunammite woman. And she prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give her a son. And God heard her prayer, and she had a son. Well, that boy grows up, and then one day his head starts hurting, and he, he passes away. And the prophet Elisha comes, lays over him, prays over him, and life returns to his body. It's kind of just nestled there in the Old Testament scriptures. Well, the rabbis used to teach that that young boy grew up to be the prophet Habakkuk. It's part of what we call the rabbinical tradition. Now, we do not know that for certain. We don't know for certain that that young boy was Habakkuk, but we are certain about this. Habakkuk was a frustrated dude. Anybody relate to that? Anybody just kind of find yourself frustrated sometimes? Apparently not. You guys have no frustration levels. Yeah, Habakkuk was a frustrated guy. And so he would get up in the morning, he would throw a K-cup in the coffee maker, he would fire up the computer, and he would start reading the world news. And one of the things that infuriated him was all the evil and injustice that was in his world. Habakkuk lived during the age of empires. Now imagine living during that era where you didn't know if an invading army or people group might show up at your village tomorrow and basically kill all the men and enslave the women and children. This was the world in which he lived, this world where people just came in and and they took, and you could not take life for granted at all, and Habakkuk was deeply frustrated by all this injustice. He also became frustrated with the attitude of God's people. See, Habakkuk was a priest, and we believe that he was one of the priests in the temple. And so every day he would minister in the temple, and he would see people come to worship God. So here's what began rubbing Habakkuk wrong. He would watch them, and they would come in, and they'd be so apathetic. Or he would see corruption in the temple. Or he would see people that they were coming to worship God, and all they really did was criticize everything. And all this began to cause disillusionment within Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is driven to prayer, and in chapter 1, he calls out to God, and he asks God a question that many of us quietly ask as well. God, why, why do you force me to look at evil, to stare trouble in the face day after day? Now, have you, ever, have you ever asked God something like that? God, why? Maybe on a personal level it goes more like this. God, why did you give me this boss? Why do you force me to work in this environment? Lord, why, why did I grow up in a dysfunctional family? Why did you give me this family? Lord, why are there so many things that just aren't right? In the world around us. On a societal level. You think about the 
slave ships of the 19th century. You think about the Holocaust and the genocide of the 20th century. You think about the terrorist attacks of the 21st century. And it's really easy to, like Habakkuk, just come to God and say, God, why? And in chapter 1, it's like we are literally eavesdropping on Habakkuk's conversation with God. And his basic question to God is, why don't you act? Why don't you do something about it? There's all this bad stuff going on. God, do something about it. God, 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 and, and God says to Habakkuk, just wait. Just wait. Because I am going to do something about it. In fact, I'm going to rise up the Babylonians. And their army is going to come in and they're going to take care of all the evil and injustice in Jerusalem. That chapter 1, verse 8 says, Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. And Habakkuk's like, God, that's not the answer I was looking for. Okay, so, so put yourself in Habakkuk's sandals. You're basically praying, Lord, there's so much corruption and so much wrong in our country. Why don't you do something about that? And God's answer to you is, yes, I'm about to do something about it. There's an invading army that's going to come in and conquer all of you. And so Habakkuk is like, that's not, what I, that, that's not what I was going for. And then he starts doing the comparison games. Lord, I know we've done some bad things, but really, the Babylonians, they're like ten times worse than us. I mean, we're bad, but they're like really, really bad. And so in chapter 1, he's wrestling with the problem of, God, why don't you do something? And then after God says, this is what I'm about to do, then he begins wrestling with another problem that many of us deal with today still, and that is, God, this isn't fair. Now, fairness is one of the top arguments that atheists will chunk over the wall at Christians. And they'll ask us this question, okay, how can you worship a God that allows all this injustice, and how how can you call this God good? Fairness, I've observed, is also one of the main reasons why people leave church. Something happens that they get angry about. Usually it happens in their life. It may happen within the relationships of the church. They get angry about something, and so they push away from God, and they, they just kind of leave their roots and leave the faith and live life on their own terms. Now, there's a lot of areas in life where we want things and we need things to be fair. Des Bryant catches the pass from Tony Romo, makes two athletic moves, reaches the ball out for the end zone, and the referee calls it incomplete. It's been two, three years now, and I'm still rubbed wrong by that, okay? Because it just wasn't fair, all right? Anybody, I'm sorry to bring that memory back, but we want things to be fair. Whenever we go to vote here in a few days, and by the way, you need to vote. You need to vote. Whenever you go to vote, uh, you want a fair election. You want your vote to count. You don't want people that live that died 20 years ago voting. You know, you want it to be a fair election because we need 
fairness, whenever you were a little kid and your 10-year-old sister got a bigger piece of pizza than you got, you were like, Mom, that's just not fair. But now catch this. When it comes to God, you don't want fair. You want grace. Okay, here's the temptation. God, I don't like this. This is evil. This is wrong. This is sinful. Why don't you do something about it? Why don't you wipe out those people and we forget about the fact that I too am a sinner? So if God wipes out sin, guess what he's going to have to wipe out? You. Okay. So when it comes to God, you don't really want fair, you want grace, because Scripture repeatedly teaches us that we all fall short of God's holy, glorious standard. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is certainly no righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53.6, we all went astray like sheep, we have all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We live in a world in which we all sin, and the natural result of our sin is a world that has evil and injustice, decay, and death. So this darkness that we see in the world, it is a natural overflow of the sin that is in the world. And here's the heart of the story of the Bible. Here's the heart of Scripture. God... And an extraordinary act of love sends his son into the world to live the life that you and I could never live, to live the sinless life, and to die on the cross receiving the punishment for our sins unto himself, to take the wrath of God into the grave, and because of the power of the son, death could not contain him. He rose again and extended the invitation for all to believe in Him so that we might have forgiveness for our past, purpose for our present, and hope for our future. Through Jesus, make sure you catch this. Through Jesus, God offers us something that is exponentially better than fair. God offers us grace. A favor from God that we do not deserve. And with grace also comes the presence of God so that God says, I will walk with you through the ups and downs of life. And God pronounces us what is called in Romans justified, a judicial term as if the gavel has fallen. And God says, though you have sinned, I look at you as innocent because I see you not in your sins. I see you in Jesus Christ. And because we are in Jesus Christ, then we sing with Paul in Romans and we understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God because our salvation and our presence is secure in Jesus Christ. It is guaranteed not through our good behavior, but through His shed blood. That's deep. That's exciting. That's better than fair. That's grace. And nothing separates us from the love of God because His love is extended to us through the grace of God. So in chapters 2 and verse 4, God reminds Habakkuk 
of what he is wanting from him. You ever ask this question? God, what do you want from me? And so in chapter 2, God says, okay, Habakkuk, realize this, the righteous will live by faith. Those that have been forgiven, those that are righteous, those that are God's, you are to live by faith. You may not realize this, but this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. It's quoted again in Romans chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 10. Four times God goes out of his way to make sure that we understand that the righteous will live by faith. You say, Lash, what does God want from me? He wants me. He wants you. He wants us to trust him, to place our faith in him. You say, but I don't understand this. I don't figure this out. This doesn't make sense to me. God says, trust me even when it doesn't make sense. Trust me even when it's beyond your power. You say, but this over here, this just isn't right. God needs to do something about this. God says, trust me and place your faith in me even though it doesn't make sense because the righteous shall live by faith. And Habakkuk begins to embrace this. Habakkuk begins to understand that God is calling him beyond the questions and beyond the despair. God is calling him to faith. And so we reach chapter 3, and that's when Habakkuk sings his prayer to God. And it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. Make sure you, make sure you catch this verse, highlight it, underline it, share parts of it on Facebook. This is one of these passages of Scripture that all believers need to, need to remember. Habakkuk three sixteen through 19. He says, I heard and trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Then catch this, though the fig tree does not bud, and there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the field produces no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, because Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength, he makes, me like, he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. Habakkuk thinks about what's about to happen, and he trembles. He writes, I must wait quietly for the day of distress. There are times when being a Christian causes you to grieve because you know that when people... Or when a society ignores God's truth, eventually distress will come. There are consequences when we abandon God and turn our back on God. And eventually those consequences become reality. Now let's be careful here. The Christian's job is not to judge. We are not the ones that extend wrath. That role belongs to God. Yet at the same time, Christians are to discern. So we do not judge, yet we do discern. There is such a thing as right, and there is such a thing as wrong. And Christians can stand for 
the truths that are in the Scriptures and say, yes, this is right and this is wrong. And if you turn away from God's truth and turn to your own way, as Isaiah 53 said, you will eventually experience the distress that comes with running from God. And there are times when Christians grieve because we see people that we love running from God or a society that we love running from God, and we know that sin has consequence. And so Habakkuk trembles and he waits quietly because he knows that the day is coming when the fig tree will have no fruit. He knows that the day is coming when all the cattle that are currently in the stall will be gone and there will be no meat. And he does not look forward to that day, yet at the same time he says, here's my resolution. I am going to triumph in God. I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. And then catch the imagery. He makes my feet like those of a deer, and He enables me to walk on the mountain heights. What's He saying? He's saying, I'm going to trust God even though I don't understand. Even though there are things that I think God should do, I'm going to continue to trust Him. Even though there are things that aren't fair, I'm going to continue to trust Him. And I think that's what God is saying to us today. Trust me. You say, but I have doubts. Push through the doubts to faith. Trust me. You say, but this isn't fair. I think God should do this. Push through that to faith. And God says, whenever you trust me, you will find, when you enter into my presence, you will find that I will be your salvation. I will be your strength. I will make your feet like those of a deer. I'll lead you to the mountain heights. You ever been in a mountain area or in a more rural area and you come across a deer? And then that deer sees you. The deer in the headlights thing. But then the deer runs. You ever watch how nimble they are and how powerful they are and how quick they are? You ever seen mountain goats run up the hillside? And watch the way that they can climb and watch the strength and the ability to move that they have. God says, I I will make your feet like that of a deer. I I will give you speed. I will give you ability. I will help you navigate these challenges and these adventures of life. And I will take you to the mountain heights. You ever been at the top of the mountain and look down? Here's one thing that no one can deny. When you go to the top of the mountain, you have a fresh perspective. And that's one of the things about prayer. Whenever we go into the presence of God, God does not always eliminate the immediate problem. But He gives us a fresh perspective. He helps us to begin to see things from His perspective, from that mountain perspective where we begin to understand, okay, God's in control of things. I'm not. Okay, I I see things differently because the Holy Spirit has ministered to me and now I have a fresh perspective because I'm seeing things through God's perspective. That's how it is when we take our pain into the presence of God. When we pray, it's a humbling experience. 
And through the power of the prayer, God gives us a fresh, fresh perspective and a fresh strength to continue navigating the joys of life. It may be that Habakkuk's prayer is the answer from God that you've been waiting for. Maybe not the answer that you expected, but it may be the answer that you've been waiting for. You've been praying about something, a life decision, a health issue, something going on in your family, something going on with your children at school, at work, whatever it might be. And you've been praying, God, I need you to do something. I need you to fix this. It may be that God says, your answer is to trust me. To keep on going in faith and believe that I've got this. That's the answer I'm giving to you. To go ahead and rejoice in the Lord even though the fig tree does not bud and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet you still rejoice in the Lord and trust Him because that's where your faith is. You know that the answers of life are not found in chasing happiness. Nowhere in the Bible does the Scriptures teach us to chase happiness. You don't find it in Scripture that the goal of parenting is to help your children be happy. Chasing happiness is not the scriptural theme. The theme of Scripture is that we are to pursue God. We are to chase God. We are to pursue His glory. Because ultimately, when you read the Bible, you discover that you're not the star of the show. That God is the star of the show. And He has given you a life. And that life is a gift from God. And that life is to be lived in such a way that it honors God. And here's where the secret begins to unfold. When you quit chasing circumstances and you quit chasing happiness and you start chasing God, you begin to find that you have forgiveness for your past, purpose for your present, and hope for your future. You begin to find that that hole in your heart that seems unsolvable, unfillable, can be filled by the very presence of God, and you begin to discover that you have meaning and vitality and life that comes from above. And as you chase God and seek to bring glory to Him, you find that your life once again has joy. Laughter returns to your lips, energy to your body, purpose to your life, perspective to your vision. Because you're no longer chasing circumstances, you're no longer chasing the creation, you're chasing the Creator, desiring Him. And that's what Habakkuk found. He found his answers in God because he was going to rejoice in God no matter the circumstances around him. And I submit to you that that very well may be the answer to your prayer. To rejoice in the Lord and to find the strength that only comes from Him. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads, please, as we come to a time of commitment? It may be that today is the day where you need to take that first step of faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. If that's you, 
please do not leave this place until we get a chance to talk. I'll be here at the front during this next song. I'll be here after the service as well. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. I also realize that many of us come into these doors with a lot of life challenges and a lot of, a lot of dissonance because we get these answers from the world that says, do this, and those answers don't really provide the answers, that, the solutions that we're looking for. And then we get this answer from Scripture that says, trust in the Lord. But I want you to, I want to challenge you to embrace God today. Can you pray like Habakkuk? That though the fig tree does not bud and though there are no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will find my strength in Him The Lord is my salvation. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us not to spend our days chasing after things that flee as quickly as the breath of life. But help us, Lord, to spend our days abiding in those things that transcend life, that last for all eternity. Lord, there is so little in this world over which we really have control. And there is so much about this world in which we must trust you totally. And so we as believers do not live life as those who have no hope. But we live our lives trusting in you, following you as men and women, boys and girls, driven by faith. And so we pray for the strength of the deer to be able to navigate through life's challenge. And we pray for the mountain perspective to be able to see the world around us from your perspective. And I ask that we might find our deep, deep joy in knowing you. And from that relationship with you, may we find purpose, happiness. May there be laughter upon our lips, love in our homes, and a deep sense of well-being from your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, in Jesus' name that we worship, amen.